With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Let's roll the compilation. Boom, shake the room, Fire Nation. JLD here with an audio masterclass. And to drop these value bombs, I have brought Kaylee Boyle on the mic. Hello, Fire Nation. And hello, John. Thank you so much. I have brought Guy Raz on the mic. It's really a gift I have. And I promise you, I can stretch my face more than you can. Barbara, are you prepared to ignite? John, I'm sitting here looking at the photo of you and I'm prepared to ignite with you, brother. You're good looking. <laughs> Tony Robbins. <laughs> I'm on fire every day, yes! brother. <laughs> Tony Robbins. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was John Lee Dumas. Now, with the Entrepreneurs on Fire podcast, or EOF for short, John releases interviews with inspirational entrepreneurs and impacts the lives of millions of his listeners. It's not just his listeners that are rewarded either. Since 2012, the podcast has brought in a gross income of close to $20 million. Doing research for this interview, I learned that John is a pretty big deal within the podcasting space. A few of the people I've interviewed lauded him as a mentor, and one podcaster that I talked to a couple days ago bragged about getting a beer with him once. He has this mythical guru-like aura about him, and it was honestly a bit intimidating. Actually, at the beginning of this interview, my Zoom audio crashed, and I looked like I didn't know what I was doing, and he impatiently waited while I frantically tried to get things working. I remember thinking, I'm screwing up podcasting while talking to the podcasting god. Maybe I'm going too far, but as I composed myself and started the interview, I realized all this success, his godlike podcasting status, it wasn't given by some Calvinist predestination. His success is years in the making. He's been iterating on his routine, his goals, and his life path essentially since childhood. My childhood in Maine was a very enjoyable one. Our town was less than 2,000 people total. So it was one of those situations where you knew your neighbors, you knew people in the town. When you went to the country store to pick up milk, you knew people who were in the store. You just had this very small town, friendly environment. And, you know, growing up, it was just one of those situations where with sports and with activities, everybody was just always outdoors. We were always enjoying different things that we could do, whether it be in the winter, we'd be skiing, or going hiking in the woods, didn't matter how cold it was. Whether it be in the summer, we'd be swimming in the lakes and just enjoying time outside playing basketball and different sports you can do then. So I just kind of look back at my time in Maine as this one where it was definitely a little bit of a bubble. You know, we explored outside of the bubble every now and then. I remember, you know, the big trip was to the city of Boston where my cousins lived and it was like, oh my God, we're going to visit my city cousins down in Boston. And like, it was, you know, a 90 minute drive. So we were in the car for a while and then you'd see over the horizon, the incredible skyline of Boston as we'd be coming into the city. And I'd be like, man, this is where everything happens. And my town is where nothing happens. And it was just kind of one of those things growing up where I felt you know, very happy and secure in my small town, but at the same time, very aware that there was a bigger world out there that I was only getting a taste of every now and then. Despite living in a small town, John's horizons were expansive. He was an explorer. He was a doer, always active. The isolated bubble of his hometown in Maine burst every time he took the train to Boston, and he knew it. The cliche goes, you can make a big city small, but not the other way around. In a way, I think John internalized that saying. 
to a certain extent, yes, he enjoyed the small town bubble, but he was also excited by what lay outside of it. He was excited by the potential of his horizons. And I don't think he arrived at this unique way of interacting with the world completely independently. Some credit is owed to his dad. My father was a lawyer who, at the age of 28 or 30 years old, hung out his shingle and was just practicing law on his own. So he was a very entrepreneurial lawyer. Like he wasn't part of a law firm really just doing his own thing. So he had the opportunity in the time to leave work early to coach us for practices or take a hike with us before the sun went down. Because that to me was something that I really enjoyed seeing was that he worked very, very hard and did very well financially. But at the same time, he was able to dictate his own schedule. And that was something that I really looked at and said, man, whatever it is I end up doing when I grow up, I want that in my life. John saw his father be bold and take control of his work life. And John would follow the blueprint his father engineered, taking many of the same steps, beginning with joining ROTC in college. Young men of America, the Army Reserve Officers Training Corps, the famous ROTC, offers you an opportunity to train for service to your country. You'll be paid for learning. Here's how it works. How did you even approach that lifestyle if, if the lifestyle that was modeled to you was so much more fluid? It was a conundrum of sorts. But the reality was my father had earned that. You know, he had earned that by doing the things that I was about to embark upon when he was younger. He did ROTC at Georgetown. Then he was a JAG officer in the U.S. Army. And then, and only then, after he served his eight years in the military, did he get out and begin his time as a solopreneur, as a lawyer who was running his own law practice and law office. So for me, I knew that was something that I always wanted in my life, but I knew I had to earn it. Because, frankly, I went to college, like most people go to college, penniless, you know, and I did not want to graduate college in mountains of debt. So seeing that my father had gone to Georgetown because he was in a similar situation to me where nobody was going to cover all of his college expenses, he did the ROTC route, had a great experience. And so I was just like, you know what? That's going to be a good route for me. How did your expectations of what ROTC would be line up with what it actually was? So ROTC was very intense for a college student. At the time, it felt like it was almost the end of the world. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you had to wake up at about 5.30 a.m. to be at the gymnasium for a 6 a.m. to 7.30 workout. The half jack, time to sit. So this was the training that you had to do every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday as part of the ROTC program. To me, watching my friends who were not in ROTC go out Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, every single week, and you know have an absolute blast and then sleep until 9, 10, noon, who knows, the next morning, I was like, man, I'm really sacrificing a lot. It almost cost me to drop out. Everything that you said that you wanted to model your life around was your father, right? Like you went to college and did ROTC so you could live the exact same life as your father. And so I imagine that even thinking about dropping out was like, I would have to restructure my identity. Absolutely. And for my scholarship, I had the first year as kind of like a test phase. And then if I was going to commit to the four years of ROTC and then the eight years of being an officer in the Army, it was at that point I was going to sign the contract. So I can remember talking to him about potentially not going to sign that contract, which he was very much so against and definitely took his side, which was you are definitely making a huge mistake if you do drop out of ROTC. 
But for me, you know, I was just very present in the moment thinking of my life will be better if I don't have to wake up early Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Like I wasn't thinking of the hundreds of thousand dollars of debt that I would have incurred had I dropped my ROTC scholarship. I wasn't thinking about losing a little bit of that grittiness and toughness that it took to wake up at 5.30 a.m., you know, when all of my friends had pretty much just gone to sleep a couple hours prior to that. And you're surrounded by people your age who are looking to have fun. And that's a tough scenario to keep it in check. College is supposed to be the best four years of your life, right? Or at least that's what we are led to believe. So I can see why John might question sacrificing these seemingly valuable years for success down the road. His ROTC commitment was an investment in the future, but it also devalued his college experience, or so he thought at the time. In order to run the ROTC cost-benefit analysis, he went to the person he trusted most, his father. After all, his dad had gone through it and had experienced both the cost and benefits of the program firsthand. The verdict was in. It was worth it. The training materialized into John's first job out of college. He started as an officer in Fort Lewis at the very bottom. So when I was shipped off to Fort Lewis, Washington, you know, here I am now, a butter bar. You're bottom of the totem pole when it comes to officers. You're the lowest rank you can possibly be as an officer. So after Fort Lewis, I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky for a 12-month training in armor officer basic school. So I learned how to become a tank commander. We learned how to drive the tank, how to load the tank, how to fire the tank, and then how to command the tank. Those are the four positions. And then I was shipped to Fort Riley, Kansas, where I was given my platoon. And pretty shortly after that, we were shipped off to Iraq for that 13-month tour of duty that you referred to. And that was quite an experience. We were going from training and going out on weekend missions, shooting blanks, to, okay, now we're locked and loaded with real ammo. Now there's real enemies out there. Now there's actual targets that are not only, you know, do we have to find and fire at, but they could fire back. And they have real weapons, and they literally are trying to do us real harm. One of those situations I'll never forget was when we were in Kuwait about to cross the DMZ, like this demilitarized zone, into Iraq, we got this briefing from our commanding officer, and he literally said the words on the Iraqi side of the border when we drive through, there may be protests tomorrow. These were determined protesters. They came from all over the city, walking for hours to get to Liberation Square. Cars were banned across Baghdad and the Green Zone, home to the Iraqi and government. And some of those protests may involve kids. Your orders are to not stop, no matter what. And it was just like this huge slap in the face of going from like this four-year college student who was enjoying life and was playing at the Army as a cadet to then all of a sudden now, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I may honestly be giving an order to not stop a tank from rolling forward through a protest. The words were so shocking to hear coming from my commanding officer that I was maybe within 24 hours or even 12 hours of having to make that decision that it really woke me up to what we were about to be experiencing for the next 13 months and you know how at the end of the day, my number one priority was to bring my 16 soldiers in my platoon home. And that was the focus, and that was the goal. During my 13-month tour of duty, it was like every day was a Super Bowl. You had to wake up, and you had to put on your battle face because you did not know what was going to happen. 
You did not know if today was going to be the day that you were going to be attacked or there was going to be, you know, some sort of incoming mortar rounds or if there was going to be this situation or that situation. You just honestly did not know what was going to happen. So you just had your 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 go time battle face on every single day. Every day had to be treated like a Super Bowl. And that was for 13 months. That's a long time to have every day be a Super Bowl. One thing that I definitely recognized when I left was, man, it was almost like the stakes went from so high to so low overnight that it was almost like nothing mattered after that. And this fact really slapped me in the face when I was watching the New England Patriots play a football game. Third and eight, Brady got it away and completed it. This is Malcolm Mitchell for the touchdown. In a game that I would usually be so into and so excited about, I could just care less. I'm like, I literally don't care if they win or lose. And to me, I was like, oh my God, what is happening to me right now? Like, how can I not care about something that I was so passionate about for my whole life? I mean, even when I was in Iraq, we would get the games and I loved watching them while I was even deployed in Iraq. Like it was one of my favorite things to do. Like it was like this escape. But now that I'm back, I could honestly care less about it. And I was not caring whatsoever about the little things in life and even the big things in life. And it was a really scary feeling. When John talks about football, what he's really talking about is enjoying life's simple pleasures. Seeing the beauty in a moment, a pink and purple sunrise, a ladybug floating to your hand, even Tom Brady throwing a perfect spiral. Brady, a fake end zone bound touchdown. After a rock, nothing, nothing mattered. If New England sports didn't matter, then grocery shopping didn't matter. Then hanging out with friends didn't matter. Then driving to work didn't matter. Then life doesn't matter. Why should it when he's seen war zones and come within one mortar round of death? The low stakes of civilian life became unbearable. Maybe because it reminded him of how close he was to death, maybe something deeper. What's more is he fell into despair. He realized he felt this way and understood that he didn't want to feel this way, but still he couldn't change it. Change is hard. It's hard to get yourself to jump out of your seat at a Patriots victory when life seems meaningless. He had to do something. I think over time, a fight or flight response kicked in and he chose a flight. I was completely at a loss as to what to do next. I did not know what was on my plate. And that's actually, you know, when I just said, hey, I need to get out of here. I need to pull the zip cord and just go to a place where everybody's not just asking me about what was Iraq like, where nobody really knows me, where nobody's asking me, what's next for you? Like, what's next? Like, you're out of the military now. Like, what's your next move? I remember being on a trip somewhere and talking to this person who was just like, man, I just got back from this place in Guatemala. It's called Panajachel. It's up in the mountains. It is absolute paradise. From his verbal description, what I pictured in my mind was just exactly what I needed. So I booked a four-month trip to go to Panajachel, Guatemala, and live life and learn Spanish. I was taking four hours of Spanish a day. I was surrounded by people who didn't know me, who I didn't know, and I could essentially have this fresh, enjoyable experience that had nothing to do with my past. In order for John to feel free, he needed to be free of his past. He had to be free of the war zone he served in and the town he grew up in. The Guatemalan paradise was totally unencumbered by the rowdy dorm parties of his college days and the whirring bullets of Iraq. It was also a place that had a wealth of beauty. His innocence had been destroyed in Iraq. But here, in Guatemala, he found peace. The same peace John found when taking refuge in nature while growing up in Maine. He returned to an Edenic life, 
a life before the complexity of adulthood, professionalism, and war. But he couldn't stay in paradise forever. I was having a lot of conflicting emotions. Like I knew that I was enjoying this four month experience in Guatemala, but at the same time, I always did look at it as a small respite to the quote unquote real world. I always felt like I was going to at some point be forced back into a more traditional life. Why? I don't really know. I was young and I didn't really know that there was any other options going forward because I knew for one thing that I wasn't making any money when I was in Guatemala, but I was spending a lot of money and I was watching my bank account go lower and lower and lower. And again, I was just saying, what could be next? And I was coming up completely empty-handed until I just said, well, you know, I don't really know what I want right now, but I do know that people will be impressed if I go to law school. I know that it will give me some time to maybe learn some more about myself and about what I want to do. And again, I knew my dad would be really excited and proud. First three weeks of law school were great. And then somehow I did slide into a PTSD despair where I was able to kind of fight it off a little bit while I was in Guatemala because I was keeping myself so busy and just always exploring and trying new things. But it just seemed to creep back when I was in law school and having to spend so much time reading textbooks and law cases and reviews and and just really mentally tax my brain. I pretty much made the decision by the third week that, you know what, I am going to gut this out for the rest of the semester because this might just be a phase that I go through. But as it stands now, there's no way I'm coming back for the next semester. After leaving paradise, John could manage the far less idyllic experience of slogging through law textbooks, but only for a couple weeks. He soon came to feel the same way about law school as he did about the Patriots. Nothing. It doesn't matter. Then came the despair. He had to ask himself hard questions. Am I doing this only because my dad wants me to? Is law school just a filler while I figure out what to do with my life? Is this who I am and where I want to be? With no compelling answers to his questions and no real motivation to continue his studies, John thought about dropping out. I knew that I was going to have to talk and confront my father in person about my decision to leave law school. But I knew that I was not going to be able to verbally get across the message that I needed to and fully describe my reasoning for leaving law school Because as soon as I started talking, I knew he would either interrupt me or I would lose my composure. So I knew the right move was to succinctly write down exactly the message and the words that I wanted him to read. And then I would hand him that letter. He was shocked. And I'll never forget that as he's reading the letter, blood just starts coming out of one of his nostrils. So just some kind of pressure built up to such a high level, and it affected him so much. It was one of those situations where he had a few questions, I had a few answers. Neither of us left the conversation feeling great about it, but the message was conveyed. John confronted his father in a semi-confrontational way. On the one hand, He said his piece. On the other, it was a letter. But then again, he stood right there as his dad read the letter. If John had relayed his wishes out loud to his father, then he may have faltered. His dad may have had the chance to convince him otherwise, as he did with the ROTC. A letter had a sense of finality, though. It was written, delivered, and it couldn't be changed. His dad couldn't edit it. John wouldn't be talked out of his decision like he had been before. His decisions were now his and his alone. And the next big decision, India. 
India was a great experience. As soon as I landed, I felt completely anonymous. And I just felt this weight lift off me of, okay, like I know that in the eyes of my parents and friends and family, like I'm a failure of sorts for dropping out of law school. I'm no longer like an army officer. I'm no longer a combat war veteran. Like you are your most recent activity. My most recent activity was a law school dropout. So like that's what I was to them. And just being able to, to not live in that truth I felt the weight lift off me as soon as I landed in India. And we traveled the entire country. And one day I was just walking along the beach in Mumbai. And this white limo pulls up and says, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, do you want to be in a movie? And I was like, I guess that they think every five foot ten white dude looks like Tom Cruise. I very trustingly jumped in that white limo. They took me to a Bollywood movie set where I was an extra and I was the lead keyboard pianist of the band where I got to dance with all of these beautiful Russian women in yellow dresses just spinning around me. It was quite an experience. From law school to dancing with Russian women in a Bollywood movie, John was caught in this push and pull between a desire for extreme discipline and extreme freedom and spontaneity. Burdened by the label of law school dropout, he felt trapped. He felt he wanted to escape. He wanted to take flight once more. He had to do something radical to break free. Now that he was on a new continent, worlds away from the opinions of everyone he knew, John was once again free to explore his identity without the weight of familial and societal judgment. But he knew his trip to India was just a temporary escape from his real life. Soon, John felt the magnet of security pulling him back to a traditional lifestyle. It was continuously going back to, what can I do that, number one, I'm going to enjoy, number two, is going to make my parents proud, and number three, provide a lifestyle that I can enjoy. That ended up being corporate finance at that moment in my life. And I could just picture what it would be like to kind of be part of society again. Because that is one weird thing when you aren't working day to day and you just kind of have this laissez-faire lifestyle. You feel a little disconnected with the world. Like you're just not feeling relevant as a human being. And I kind of wanted that feeling of relevancy. And I felt like that was an option for me. So I gave it a try. I quickly became one of the top sales guys in my entire office at John Hancock. In fact, within three months of me being there, the top position became available and they decided to put three people up for that position. It was the two most experienced people in the office and then me. And I can remember them pulling me aside and being like, listen, we're just putting you into this opportunity because your numbers are so good after three months you're getting this chance, but just don't think you're going to actually get the job because we're going to give it to somebody that's more experienced. But we just want other people to know that we're going to give opportunities to people no matter their experience when they work hard. And I was working hard. But then when the interview process happened, I just crushed it. And it was just a really interesting experience to go from bottom of the totem pole to top of the totem pole especially for me coming from the military where it's all about time and grade. All the discipline John had cultivated in his years at ROTC, his years in the military, it paid off. He put in the work at John Hancock and saw returns almost immediately. But his job at the company elucidated a conflict between his warring value systems. He was caught at the nexus of two generations. The generation before him valued security over all else envisioning life as a series of nine to five workdays, retirement, then death. But at the same time, the internet was creating endless new opportunities. However, golden handcuffs kept John securely in that nine to five, at least for the time being. I was looking down and seeing the golden handcuffs. I was making a lot of money. I knew the job. I was doing well. But what happened was, I came into work and boom, the market crashes. 
This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. Dow tumbled more than 500 points. What the heck is going on down here? All of a sudden here, we started hearing screaming. Within a couple days, Bear Stearns is out of business. Lehman Brothers out of business. And we could see their offices. So we were watching people walk out with their boxes of stuff. And it was like shocking. And all of a sudden, it just kind of hit me like the lights could turn off tomorrow. And I'll never forget the following week, they laid off 70% of our floor. And that was the feeling of like, man, I can work so hard for a company and I can make a company so much money, but something happens in the economy and now all of a sudden I'm walking out the door with a cardboard box in my hands, not knowing where I'm going to go. And I said, man, I just want more control of my future than that. And I'll never forget, they gathered the remaining 30% of us in the auditorium. And the president said very clearly, look to your left and look to your right. Everybody who's in this room right now is here because we want you here and we believe in you. And if you don't feel the same in us, you need to leave today because this is all hands on ship. And I looked to my left, looked to my right and said, I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) And so I said, if I'm going to be honest to their request, I'm out of here. So I went back to my desk. I Googled boilerplate resignation letter, printed it out, signed my name and handed it to my very shocked boss who said, you're quitting now? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm out of here. And I literally walked out the door that day. Unlike his colleagues, trudging out of the office, hanging their heads, hands burdened by boxes of shame, the moment John turned in his resignation and walked out those doors, he was a new man, a free man. Sure, his actions could err on the side of adolescent arrogance, but at the same time, you can't help but admire his boldness. For the majority of his life, John was in a position of limited power. He was a commanding officer, but he was at the bottom of the totem pole. He was the top sales rep, but he couldn't guarantee the security of his job. These experiences taught him that he wasn't sure of what would be, but he had a better idea of what shouldn't be. He was committed to stepping towards a purpose-driven life. We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie. I can help you. Hello. I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with... A, a friend. I'm trying to understand. You, you, want to, you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right. So like like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I feel like I... It's just not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. I mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, stuff like that. But to sit sit in each other's lap, that's probably going to be an issue. But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast. So my next step was go west. And I jumped in a car with that sense of freedom and no clue what I was going to do. And I moved sight unseen to San Diego. And I got an apartment that I found on Craigslist that was a block from the beach. And I set up shop. And over the next few days, I made the decision I was going to give uh, real estate a try. And one thing that I was doing while I was in my car driving around to different real estate appointments or real estate opportunities or just scouting out neighborhoods is I would listen to podcasts. 
and I just fell in love with the medium of podcasting. And I knew that podcasting was something that was just going to start to gain traction with other people as time moved forward. So there I was in San Diego trying to figure things out. I'm really enjoying listening to podcasts. I feel like I'm learning a lot. And then I get a pretty interesting job offer to go back to Maine and get into a commercial real estate firm on a partnership track that again was like, oh my God, this magnet has found me again. I'm being pulled back to this traditional career that is potentially going to be the rest of my life. And so I went back to Maine. It's time to start a career and actually get serious about my life. But I just kept listening to podcasts and being inspired by these podcasts that I was listening to, and especially this one that was called The Eventual Millionaire. Welcome to The Eventual Millionaire with your host, Jamie Masters. Hey, it's Jamie, and welcome to this 20 something year old female who was interviewing millionaires about her journey of becoming an eventual millionaire and how she wanted to learn from these billionaires how they did it so she could apply their lessons to her life. And I was like, man, I just feel like there needs to be more podcasts that are out there like hers. In fact, I want to find a podcast that comes out every single day with an interview with a successful entrepreneur because I would listen to that podcast. So I went to find that podcast and it did not exist. I was like, how can this podcast not exist? I said, you know what? I'm going to start my own podcast. It's going to be a daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. I don't know what I'm doing. So let me reach out to somebody who knows what they're doing. And Jamie Masters, who was the host of this podcast called The Eventual Millionaire, was the first person that came to mind. So on June 1st of 2020, I emailed her and asked her to become my mentor. my family looked at it like, okay, John took a break and he went to Guatemala. Then he did something serious. Now he's taking a break again with his podcasting thing. And you know, who knows what podcasting is? We don't know what podcasting is, but I'm sure he'll get tired of that soon. And then he'll go back to something serious. It was one of those things where they just didn't get it, which is understandable because not many people in 2012 understood what a podcast was. It was time for John to get serious about his life. To his parents, serious meant having a financially stable job, not traveling across the country to become a podcast host. But for John, podcasting was serious. Despite his affinity for podcasts and the knowledge that he didn't want a traditional career, he still had trouble fighting the pull of a comfortably boring life in Maine. Like John said, his father was his role model. And at some level, he felt an obligation to appease his family and his father and follow in his father's footsteps. But in doing so, he was conforming to his father's life and thus losing his own identity. To break the mold, he sought novelty. And a new podcasting would be an escape from the mundane. So he found a mentor and started from the beginning. The relationship was very much so a mentor-mentee relationship where she was really taking me from ground one. Every day I'd be emailing her questions. Every week we would jump on an actual video call where she was guiding me every step of the way towards the eventual launch of my podcast in September of 2012. Jamie was really good about setting expectations I didn't think that I was going to launch my podcast and become a millionaire overnight. My expectations were, were really set well that this was a long-term investment into creating something meaningful, but it took time. So yes, I did want to see some monetary success with my podcast, but I knew the expectations of that was not going to be three months, six months, but was going to be 12 months, 20 months. John said he set realistic goals, but his initial success with growing an audience was more like a fairy tale. I was very surprised at how many people were listening to the podcast essentially from day one. Like I can remember so clearly 
launching the podcast. And every time I clicked refresh, it seemed like another 10, 20, 40 people had listened. And I'll never forget the, the number getting up to like 3,000 listens the first day and me being like, this is absolutely insane. And in hindsight, what was happening was Entrepreneurs on Fire was fitting a void that just needed to be filled. It was serving a market that just wasn't being served. Like I assumed that there needed to be a podcast like this in the podcasting space. And looking back, I like to tell people that, hey, Entrepreneurs on Fire was the best daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs day one. It was also the worst daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs day one. It was the only daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. So for me, when I'm trying to give advice to other people when they're launching their podcast or their business, I'm like, describe your niche. And they can't do it. They can't describe their niche. They can't describe the unique thing that they're offering an audience. Which, you know, a little side note um, is the reason why I said yes to this interview. I only say yes to 15-minute interviews. Why? Because everybody asks me the exact same questions in the interviews that I do. So I limit it to 15 minutes and we just knock them out. But when your team came to me with a two-hour request, that's an absolute no. But you had a completely different angle, a completely different niche. And I saw that, hey, this is going to be worth two hours of my time to create this because you guys are doing something different. You're doing something special. You're doing something unique. That's what I was doing in 2012 with Entrepreneurs on Fire. Sure, he had a niche and an audience. But back when he was starting in 2012, monetizing an audience wasn't as straightforward as it is now. He was investing thousands of dollars a month, making 365 plus episodes of the podcast, all of which resulted in minimum financial traction. That would be demoralizing for most. But John was a realist. He knew success didn't happen overnight. He would be patient. So on month 12, I had this idea to launch a service, which I called Pod Platform. I was essentially going to say, hey, Samuel, like, why don't you go ahead and record a podcast episode? Just hit, hit the record button, speak into a microphone, and then send me the MP3 file, and then I'll do the rest. Well, I launched the company, and I expected to get, you know, 20 people right away at least, and I got two. I just assumed that this was something that the world needed, and I assumed incorrectly. I was just way too early. And by the way, it's crazy that timing plays such a big role. The timing for me was so perfect to launch Entrepreneurs on Fire, but the timing for Pod Platform was terrible. So I had two clients sign up instead of the 20 I was hoping for. One asked for a refund within 24 hours, and the other one was an absolute nightmare. And I'm very thankful that she was a nightmare client in hindsight because it made me realize I do not want to be in this business by any way, shape, or form. The next month launched something completely different. And the way I came up with that next launch, that next product, was I sent an email out to my audience and I said, hey, you guys obviously didn't want this because it failed. What do you want? And I found out what my audience actually wanted from their mouth, not just from my mind. Like John said, timing is everything. But I think that advice gives luck a little too much weight. And so I want to elaborate. Yes, luck, timing, both important. But I think what is even more important is how John overcame bad timing. He was at month 12. He had a year of preparation, a year where he was figuring things out, and he thought he had it mostly figured out. So he went forward with an idea and it massively failed. That's hard and potentially demoralizing. Most would have hung up their dreams and returned to conventional life. But John is different. If you listen closely, it seems resilience is so embedded in his process that going back to the drawing board, that's just the next step. And he went to square one, egoless. He didn't pretend to know what would be valuable, so he asked his audience. He opened himself enough to learn and to grow. 
But to take Entrepreneurs on Fire to the next level, you need help. Going from those first million listeners, you decide to have Kate join the team full time. That was like the first person that, that was outside of you that was really helping you besides the person you were paying for mentorship. What factors went into that decision and, and how did you know it was the right time? So Kate and I had been together for about a year at that point and we were living together and our relationship was very serious. And I knew that she was just great at whatever she put her mind to. She was having a lot of success as an account executive for an advertising agency in Portland, Maine, which is where we were living. However, things had kind of started going south for her there. She was just given this account that was just bullying her and being pretty vindictive and mean and demanding. And what had started off a year before as her dream job has started to kind of turn into a little bit of a nightmare for her. So really just had me give a strong push and say, listen, Kate, you're not happy in your job. Things are not going to change anytime soon. So you either have the option of staying miserable or take a leap of faith, come on board, and let's build something special together. And she actually initially said no when I asked her the first time. But then another three months went by of the same just miserable cycle where she finally said, okay, I think it's time. Let's give this a go. How did you feel with her coming on the team? I was excited. It was like having Tom Brady being traded to a football <laughs> team. You're like, I've got the best quarterback in the world playing for me now. Like, that's amazing. That's what it felt like. So I was able to put Kate in charge of essentially all content creation, organization, processes, systems, tasks. It just made the business so much better overnight. Moving in with your girlfriend, that's a big step. But working together, that's a giant leap. But this leap is a necessary one because Entrepreneurs on Fire isn't just a business. It encapsulates John's life. It seems almost everything about his life is integrated into the business because it's not just a business. It's his vehicle of choice to do the things he wants to do. It's the medium by which he can influence the world in the best way he knows how. And now he didn't have to drive this vehicle alone. He could stave off the pangs of loneliness that so often accompany entrepreneurship and share his life with someone he cared about. Kate is much more than just a girlfriend. She was and is a talented account executive and someone he could trust with logistics so he could have the bandwidth to focus on expansion and exploration. So he got to exploring. I was always looking around at other successful business owners and online marketers and seeing what they were doing to generate revenue. And one thing that kept popping up over and over again were masterminds. I want to spend the entire episode talking about the podcast mastermind. People were running masterminds where they would have their audience join a paid recurring mastermind. And they'd give them extra access, extra coaching, Q&A sessions, you know, a place where people could gather and exchange ideas, support, and guidance. And I said, that could be really cool for my audience, for my listeners. Why not create that place? And that place could be Fire Nation Elite. What's up, Fire Nation? JLD here. So as many of you know my journey, I launched Entrepreneurs on Fire back in 2012. And for me, Masterminds played an immediate role in my success. So I came up with the idea. I surveyed my audience about if it was something that they'd be interested in doing. And then uh, I got Kate on board and she loved the idea as well. And we started kind of mapping out what that would look like. And then I put out another email that just said, hey, I'm going to bring in 50 people into Fire Nation Elite and I'm going to have an eight minute interview with every single person who wants in because we're only going to be bringing in the right people to this mastermind. Who wants in? And I got a couple hundred applications, um, had 50 people that were the right fits that launched Fire Nation Elite. Wow, Fire Nation. I am so blown away by the number of applications that we're receiving for Fire Nation Elite. Then we soon found that, hey, 50 people is pretty manageable. 
let's add another 50 on. So I went back to those initial applications, brought on another 50 people. And before you knew it, we had a hundred person mastermind that was meeting every single week, that was meeting every day in a Facebook group. Um, we had in-person events once a year, sometimes more often, depending on the events that we would go to. It was a five figure a month revenue generator every single month for the entire 30 months that we ran that mastermind. I'll never forget the first month, it was like $16,500 or something like that that we collected from our mastermind members. And I said, man, I just turned this into a six-figure business, just like that. He took with him the hard lessons from Pod Platform, the feedback from his audience, and applied it all to Podcaster's Paradise tutorials, templates, and a community that help to grow and monetize your podcast. Podcasters Paradise, that is. Paradise is filled with all the video tutorials, resources, and most importantly, the community you need to help ignite your podcasting journey. Grab your laptop and your microphone, friends, and get ready to create, grow, and monetize your podcast. With over 200 And unlike Pod Platform, which did two sales on day one, we did 35 sales on day one of it opening. And as you and I are speaking, we brought in well over 5,000 members, made well over $6 million in that one course. This success was the endorsement he had been looking for. His parents had doubted him calling his podcasting career a phase, but it wasn't. It was a career of substance, even more financially sound than the safe alternative of real estate. And when I say more financially sound, I don't mean for everyone. I mean for John. I mean for someone who has passion. If you're passionate about your field, the income statistics become irrelevant. The average podcast is not profitable and probably is losing money. Yet John was seeing five figures monthly revenue. Why? Because John had no intention of being average. He threw out the average and became a leader in the space. The success of Podcasters Paradise really solidified me as an acknowledged leader in the podcasting space. Here I was doing a daily podcast. I was cranking out more podcast episodes than anybody else. What's shaking, Fire Nation? JLD here. Boom, shake the room. Light that spark, Fire Nation. When the business world shifts gear, use it to accelerate. I was generating significant revenue month over month in the online marketing space. So my next big step and my next big shift was... Now that I'm an influencer, an authority figure, an acknowledged leader in the podcasting space, let's really embrace this. So I wrote a book. I began to speak in keynote major conferences on the topic of podcasting. I mean, we live in such... I began to hold webinars and private one-on-one day with JLDs where I would just take a person who would fly into San Diego and spend an entire day with me as we just crafted their entire podcasting plan for, by the way, $10,000. So now here I was making 10K for a 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. day. So that really opened my eyes up that there's a lot of ways that we can go at this. We can diversify our revenue streams. We went really big on sponsorships. And so we started making a lot of money every month on sponsorships. And that's when I said, hey, by the way, why don't we make this public? Like, why don't we actually create a monthly income report every single month that's detailing out everything that's working in our business, everything that's not working in our business? And we wanted just to paint a whole picture of what a successful online business looked like. John painted a picture of legitimacy through transparency. And exposing the financials of his business, his operation became vulnerable. Vulnerable in the sense that he bore the company's soul to his audience, which further cemented entrepreneurs on fire as a credible voice in the podcasting community. He created trust. And with his trust, he now possessed real power. The power to impact people's lives. He wasn't the mentee anymore. He was the mentor. Now he was sharing his knowledge, guiding young podcast hopefuls that looked a lot like him not too long ago, to success, the high garnered from helping others, from providing value enthralled him. On the business side of things, I'm now just saying, okay, what can I do, not just for financial impacts, 
but now what are the things I can do that are going to have big impact on other people's lives, on my life, on those lives of people that I care about. So I'm writing my first traditionally published book and I'm spending hundreds of hours on this book. And guess what? This book is not going to make me a lot of money, but what it's going to do is it's going to give me a ton of impact as tens, if not hundreds, if you know, I do it right. Maybe millions of people over time will read this book and I will have the impact that I'm hoping to have for that. That's really what I'm focused on right now is like the, the big moonshots, no longer just the day-to-day grinds. John is already financially successful. So what more is there for him to achieve? Once more, we return to this theme of impact. Maslow contended that man is an ever-wanting animal. As one of his needs is satisfied, another appears in its place. There comes a point in every successful entrepreneur's journey where they stop focusing on fiscal return and turn towards introspection and influence. Most people spend so much time and energy trying to satisfy these deficit needs that they rarely can direct themselves toward the fifth and most important need, the need for self-actualization. John has transcended Maslow's hierarchy, reaching the top, self-actualization. And his best self is reflected in his actions. The self-actualizing person, freed at last from the arduous tasks of satisfying the externally imposed deficit needs, is now ready to explore the possibilities of his true self. He's now writing books, not for the sake of royalties, but for the sake of sharing insight. And he has some insight for you, the people listening to this podcast. My advice would be this. It would go back to that comment that I made, that the day that I launched Entrepreneurs on Fire, it was the best daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. It was also the worst daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. It was the only daily podcast interviewing entrepreneurs. That's why I've won at such a high level. And that's why the hundreds of copycats that have come after me have not won at nearly the same level and usually at no level at all because they're just a weak, watered-down, pale imitation of something that I had already created where the real winners in this world and they're being born every single day and I'm seeing it in every single niche you can imagine are people that are finding the only, that are finding the underserved niche, that are creating the unique products, services, offerings, podcasts, content that doesn't currently exist. So if you're listening to this right now, like that is your path to initial traction. And that's all you can hope for right now is just initial traction. You don't know what's going to be successful. You don't know what's going to be the big win for you. But what you do know is how you can get initial traction. And that is by creating the best solution to a real problem. So if you can find a real problem in the world that you can provide the best solution for, you'll get initial traction. Now what you do with that initial traction, that's up to you, but that will get your foot in the door and that's all you can ask for. I'd like to expand on John's advice and provide a bit of context. Podcasting is not easy. Most people fail. Most people quit before they give the time needed to see any progress. It's hard creating content. It's hard building an audience. But what's most difficult is building before you've broken through. That building before anyone is listening before you have any indicators of success, before your friends and family believe in you, before you even believe in yourself. That's the hardest hurdle, and I can tell you that from experience. And so John is right. Anything you can do to get traction early, to create something new, something that stands out, that's going to make that first hurdle, that hardest hurdle, a little easier. Looking back at John's story, he's had many hurdles many moments of doubt. It took three decades to find his passion and months of little to no traction to get any results. Nothing was immediate. 
but he kept moving. He innovated, improved, and provided value. And here he is today, speaking to us as a leader in his field, thriving in an island paradise and giving advice to the next generation of entrepreneurs and podcasters. John has gone from mentee to mentor. And I have a feeling one day I'll be able to continue this cycle. I've listened to his story. I'm actively applying his advice and I'm inspired and looking forward to the future. Anyway, I hope I make him proud. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.